All right, this is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Emma. Um, my name's Austin Lennox. I'm on staff here at Redeemer. If I haven't met you, it's literally my job to. So I would love to love to meet you afterwards and get to know you better. Um, if you've been with us, what we've been doing on Sunday mornings is walking through this book of Philippians, which is a letter uh, that Paul is writing uh, to the church in Philippi. If you haven't been with us, that's also what we've been doing. Um, and so just a couple weeks ago, uh, we read a very famous passage where Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And death is a real prospect for Paul uh, at this point. He, he's in prison. Uh, he's facing martyrdom, facing execution. Uh, he's staring death in the face, and yet this is the letter that we get. And the predominant theme that most people have kind of picked out of uh, Philippians is joy. Uh, that somehow in the midst of facing certain death and martyrdom and being in chains in, in a Roman prison, uh, which prisons aren't great, but Roman prisons in this time were specifically bad uh, or particularly bad, uh, he's overflowing with joy. And it's just really interesting. And before we jump into the meat of, of the passage that we have this morning, we need to do some background work. Because if you notice, verse 5 says, "...have this mind among yourselves." But it doesn't really kind of tell you what mind you're supposed to have. Uh, well, last week, what Ben Winkler, one of our other pastors, uh, preached on is the text that came before this one, which is the insanity of this idea of putting other people before yourself. Uh, this crazy notion of actually doing nothing in your life from vain ambition or selfish conceit. And... Um, if that feels impossible or unattainable, join the club. But also, in this passage, Paul gives us what the secret is to how that we might actually be able to start doing that imperfectly, occasionally. And so something classic about the way that Paul writes is he, he has this one-two punch where he'll, he'll say an imperative and he'll back it up with an indicative. Now, I grew up with an English teacher as my grandmother, so I know what those words mean. But an imperative, right, is like a command. Like, go, go do this. It's imperative that you do this. An indicative is just like, it's just a statement of fact. It has nothing to do with you. It's just something that's true. And so what Paul often does is the way he commands people to do something is by backing it up with an indicative. He'll give you this imperative, hey, go have this mind among yourselves, right? Like do nothing out of vain ambition or selfish conceit. Put others before yourself. And here's why. And he grounds every command in the gospel. He just starts preaching. He says, hey, do this thing, right? Don't, don't give away your money, so that you can feel better about yourself or because it's the right thing to do or so that you can be a good person. No, give away your money because Christ, though he was rich, became poor for us. Do you, do you see what Paul does? He grounds every command in something that Jesus has done for the church, right, for his people. And so he's always grounding his command in the gospel. 
So this passage that Emma just read for us, uh, it's actually called, uh, it's been called the Christ hymn. And we don't know whether Paul wrote it or whether he's just quoting it. Um, but Paul is motivating churches, right, to, to, to put others' needs before their own, to do nothing out of a selfish, vain ambition. And he's doing it this way, through this Christ hymn. And so verse 5, right, the way Paul starts, he says, look, you have this mind already, right? Go, go have this mind, which is yours if you're in Christ Jesus. And it's kind of a weird command, right? It's like, hey, go have something that you have, right? Go possess something that you've already got. Um, we have running water, which is really great. Uh, I love that. Uh, this city that me and Meredith moved here from did not always have good running water uh, in Jackson, Mississippi. But it would be really easy for me to just say, hey, go bring me a cup of water. That's super easy to do. You've, you've got all these faucets everywhere that you can just go give somebody a drink of water. But like 200 years ago, if it was like, hey, go bring me a cup of water, that could be a tough thing unless you like, you know, had a well in your backyard or like lived close to a water source. But what Paul is saying is like, hey, you, you have a well. You, you already have possession of the thing that you need to do what I'm telling you to do. Okay, go have something that's already yours, right? Which is often the work of the Christian life. Go, go be someone who God has already said that you are, right? This is who you are. Now go be that. So Paul is saying, if you have Jesus, you have this mind. So, okay, that's verse 5. Look, there, there are about a thousand things you could say uh, about the Christ hymn, about uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And I don't have points as much as I just kind of have, like, movements. Uh, and so we're just going to kind of look at incarnation, humiliation, exaltation, and then application. We love the Asians around here. We've got the salutation, ordination, installation, celebration. Now we're doing <laughs> incarnation, humiliation, exaltation, application. So, okay, uh, verses 6 through 7 says this, right? Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Okay, so this is what the church for a couple millennia has just called the doctrine of the incarnation. Right? Big word, incarnation. And what that means simply, God became a person. Right? God became a person. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, he's equal with the Father. And yet when the fullness of time came, he took upon man's nature everything that's essential to being a human. He took it except for sin. Uh, that's the doctrine of the incarnation in a nutshell. Um, sorry, one of my favorite jokes is when someone says, hey, that's me in a nutshell. And they go, help, I'm trapped in a nutshell. So that's the doctrine of the incarnation, trapped in a nutshell, right? Second person of the Trinity became a person, right? Became a man. John 1 says it this way, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt literally, you probably know this maybe, it means tabernacled or pitched his tent, which is this Old Testament motif. But what it's saying is that Jesus, the word who was with God, who was God for all eternity, he, he came down and, and he pitched his tent and he dwells with us. Essentially, the incarnation is that God has moved into the neighborhood. Right, that God has moved into our neighborhood. He wants to be close to us. Right? He moves into our neighborhood. He wants to be with us. That in the wake of what sin did to the world, 
Right? God's response is to chase after us, to chase us down, to come after us. He desperately wants to be with us. And so what the incarnation is, him becoming a person in Jesus, is him embedding himself deeper and deeper into this world that he loves. Embedding himself deeper and deeper into us, into humanity. He's putting down roots. Right? He says, I'm not done with this. I'm not going to abandon this. I'm not leaving this. Just because it's been ruined by sin, I'm actually going to put down roots and move into the neighborhood. He doesn't throw up his hands and say, I'm done. I'm out. But here's what the incarnation is like. Uh, I worked at a summer camp for boys in college, and um, I always had the youngest students, which were the best. I would much, or not, not students, I had the youngest kids, uh, which were always the best. I would much rather uh, change sheets and play games than have to like deal with teenagers who think they're cooler than me, uh, who are legitimately cooler than me. And um, but on on the on the last day of camp, we we asked this kid. I mean, he's probably 10, 11 years old. We were like, Hey, what's the first thing you're gonna do when you get back home? And most of them were like, Man, I'm gonna chug Mountain Dew. I'm gonna like you know stay up and. and play video games or something like that. And this kid said, I'm going to go home and I'm going to put Vaseline all over my body and I'm going to lay on the ground and pretend like I'm a slug. <laughs> that was, that, he said that was the first thing he was going to do when he got home. And I mean, it obviously like stuck with all of us. We talk about it all the time. But the older I get, the more that I respect that answer. I'm like, yeah, that actually, sometimes that sounds pretty nice. Um, if that's what I could go <laughs> and do, just do that. But C.S. Lewis, Lewis says that's actually what the incarnation is like, is imagine a human being becoming something like a slug. That for you to give up all of your relationships, your, your, your potentialities, your abilities, all of these things that make you you, and to become this thing that like is so limited and so vulnerable and so weak and so small, right, like, Jesus was worshipped by angels in heaven before he became a person. And he gave that up. Right? He was worshipped in heaven by thousands of angelic beings, and he didn't grasp at that. Right? Equal with God. And he doesn't hold on to it. He doesn't grasp it tightly and insist that he keeps it. Right? To, to borrow words from another preacher, he says, Jesus in the incarnation, he doesn't insist upon his rights. That Jesus has a right to certain things, and the incarnation is that he lets those go. Right? He doesn't insist upon those things. He doesn't grasp at them, right? The incarnation is that the God of this universe becomes a baby, or becomes a human being, which, number one, that's a claim unique to Christianity, you know, the only religion that believes that God became a human being. Uh, but also that, like, he didn't, he didn't become a human being and, like, show up looking like, you know, I don't know. I didn't have an illustration for this. John Morant, right? He didn't show up and, and like have a six pack and could like do all this amazing stuff. Like he became a baby. Like at the risk of sounding irreverent, like someone had to change Jesus' diaper. And that's the God of the universe. Right? He becomes needy and weak and dependent. He chose an unwed teenage mother to bring him into the world. And as I was writing that, I was like, well, that makes it sound like I'm tempted to think that unwed teenage mothers are like some less, you know, area of society, and maybe, maybe we are tempted to think that. Jesus doesn't, right? The incarnation brings so much validity and so much dignity to these groups of people that we as a society are tempted to just ascribe less value to, right? Jesus became homeless. Uh, he, he did not have wealth. The Bible says he was a man of sorrows. The life that Jesus wrote for himself uh, would not look good on a resume, 
uh, when Prince William scandalized the royal family by posing as a homeless person for a couple weeks or something like that. Um, he wanted to understand what that was like, you know, and those stories move us, right? Like, oh man, this prince is going to like come and, and, and pose as a homeless person and really understand what it's like for the poorest of poor and the lowest of low in a city. And those stories are great and they should move us. But he was pretending. Right? He was pretending the whole time. Jesus didn't pretend. This was real life. He spent 30 years in relative obscurity that we don't know a lot about. Right? This is Halloween. We love to dress up and wear costumes. Jesus' humanity was not a costume. It, it was real. Now imagine doing all of this that we've talked about, right? The incarnation, you and I becoming like a slug, all these different pictures and things. Now imagine doing that to save people who hate you. Imagine doing that to save people who hate you. Imagine giving up all of that stuff that you've earned, that you have a right to, and to give it to people who on their very best day are still really good at running away from you and rebelling against you. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, one of my favorite authors right now, she says that these illustrations of sacrifice and selfless love that, uh, that we connect with uh, so deeply that we find in books and movies, that all of them have one main flaw that keeps them from coming close to the gospel. And it's this, right, that Lily Potter gave up her life, but she gave up her life to save Harry, her son, that she loves. It's not saying, I'm not saying that's easy, right, but when Harry gives up his life, who does he give it up to save? Hogwarts and his friends, right, people that he loves. There is no real story where Harry dies to save Voldemort, right? That, 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 <laughs> Reed's laughing because it's so ridiculous. It's so scandalous for that to happen. And that's why theologians and commenters, they call this theme in Scripture about the incarnation, they also call it the humiliation of Christ. In a way, God, he humbles himself. The life that he writes for himself is full of humility and of going low, right? Uh, the song lyrics that we included in the front of your bulletin, it's one of my favorite songs. Uh, this band, you know, really changed my life in high school. You will probably not connect with the genre of music if you decide to listen to this on your way to lunch. Uh, but lyrically, I can sign off on everything that they say. But this is what he says, right? That um, when the Son of God, who has existed and reigned in heaven from all eternity, when he comes to earth... The bed that he gives himself is a feeding trough. And that when God comes to earth, he looks like a meal for the pigs who have no clue that this thing that they're looking at, this person, is holding together the very universe that they inhabit. And that he's got to go even lower. But that's just the start of it. Sure, his death is a, or sorry, his, his birth is a lowly birth. But it, it on, that's only the beginning. He has to go lower still. Right and in verse eight, that this this the depths that Jesus goes to uh, in his life, it, it all culminates uh, with Jesus humbling himself. Says by being obedient even to the point of death. Right, death on a cross. And so maybe you knew this, but the Roman cross that Jesus was killed on uh, was reserved for uh, really bad people. Right, the the worst criminals of the time, uh, specifically enemies of the state, people who had gone against the empire of Rome. And it was excruciating, and it was terrible. It was probably the most horrific way to die. Roman emperors said that about the crucifixion, and it was very public, very shameful. Uh, Jesus, Jesus was naked when he died. Right? But, but it was so gruesome and terrible, and it was, it was reserved uh, for criminals and enemies of the state. And so think about it like this. Jesus' death, he died like a criminal. He died as if he was an enemy of the state, 
and he died for criminals. He died for people who are legitimately enemies of God. He doesn't insist upon his rights, right? If anybody being crucified in the history of humanity could have said, like, look, I I actually have a right to not be here. (laughs) I've actually earned my right to not go through this. It would have been Jesus. If anyone had the right to just, like, vaporize those people with, like, laser beams coming out of his eyes, it would have been Jesus. And he didn't do it. Because he wanted to save people. Right? He knew that he had to go through the death that we deserve. He had to be brought so low right, that his death could atone for the lowest of humanity. People who are really criminals. People who are truly enemies of God. And maybe you caught this too, but in verse 8 it says that he humbles himself. That he humbles himself. And it's so obvious, but it just struck me the other day that like, we didn't ask for this. No one asked him to do it. Right? It's not like we looked around after sin entered into the world and brought death and decay and said, hey, like, we need some help. Can you do the incarnation thing and just like, come save us? Right? No, one, no one cried out and asked for that. He humbles himself. In Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned, God's first reaction, his initial response is to make a promise. And to say, look, one day someone is going to come from the line of this woman, from her family, who's going to undo all this. Who's going to undo what sin has done. He's going to defeat death and sin forever. Right, and 2,000 years later, we get Jesus. Sorry, not 2,000. That was a weird comment about the, you know, anyway. Thousands of years later, we get Jesus, right? That's the fulfillment, the follow-through of that promise. And look, if you're like me, and I hope that you're not, But if you are like me, you you will struggle oftentimes to think that God actually likes you. Uh, You can intellectually grasp and grapple with the fact that he loves you. But I remember growing up thinking that I forced God to love me by putting my faith in Jesus. Right? I was like, tricked you, God. I put my faith in your son. Now you have to love me. Right? Now, I just always assumed his posture was one of, like, toleration. Like, I'll tolerate you. But look, the fact that he humbled himself before we even asked, it, it means that God really likes you, right? That he came after you before you even asked for it, right? He didn't come in order to be able to love you, right? He sent Jesus because he does love you. And he wanted to show you that and make a way for you to be with him. And he did that by losing his status, by becoming low. And so what you see in in, in the incarnation, in the birth, and in the life, and in the death of Jesus is that there is not a single human being who can be low enough for Jesus to save, who can be so low that that, that they're beyond saving, that they're beyond the scope of, of the life that Jesus lived and the death that Jesus died. Everyone fits. There's no person who can be too low for him to reach. And if that's the Jesus that you're grasping onto tightly, if that's the thing that you have the firmest grip on, then it actually allows you to loosen your grip on everything else. Right? Everything else in this life that we're tempted to maintain a tight grip on, if we're grasping tightly to Jesus, it can actually help us lessen and loosen this vice grip that we have on so many other things. Right? Think about it. Here's what I mean. If the main theme of your story, if, if the golden thread that holds the entire universe together is that the Son of God left heaven... And he didn't grasp onto his status. He didn't insist upon his rights. He let go of equality with God, so to speak, to come and chase you down and to save you. If that's your hope, 
then that's what makes it possible for us to let go of our status and our rights as well. Look, I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's the right uh, to having a certain job title. Maybe it's the right to sending your kids to a certain school. Maybe it's the right to living in a certain neighborhood. Maybe it's the right to having a certain amount in your savings account. Maybe it's the right to wear certain things. It could be the right to do whatever you want with your body. Uh, that you have the right to a certain lifestyle, a certain place that you vacation, right? protecting a certain image to the world that you have to have people see you as. Uh, maybe you have this vice grip on comfort. You know that feeling uh, when you get home from some like big social event and you can just like sit on the couch and like exhale? Maybe you have a vice grip on that feeling. I know I do. And it's actually our vice grip on those things, holding onto those things too tightly, that's what hurts us and hurts other people. That's what makes us low and in need of a Savior. And look, I get to say this because I don't have kids. But is it possible to insist upon your status as a parent and to never give that up and relinquish that to serve your kids even when they don't deserve it? Look, the, the incarnation, the humiliation of Jesus, that is what we need if we are ever going to be able to see ourselves primarily as servants for other people. And it's because God has done the same for us. Right? He has seen himself primarily as a servant for us. And look, I'm, I'm not saying this, but it, it could be easy to think, okay, if this is all Jesus did, right, this dying, this giving up, this humbling himself, uh, it could be easy to think, well, that's just really weak. That's really weak. Why would I worship that? Why would I follow that? How can I respect that? Um, let's read verses 9 through 11 together. It says, Therefore, right, because of all this, the humiliation, the incarnation, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, I, I think sometimes it's really easy to just stop at Jesus' death uh, I, I'm, I'm very tempted to do the same thing, to say things like, well, Jesus died for my sins. And that that's just kind of the end of it. Jesus died for me. But that's only half the truth, right? That's only half the truth. Because the exaltation, right, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, it shows that death didn't win, right? That yes, he died for your sins, but death didn't win. He actually defeats death. And so, look, Jesus' death, huge, wildly important, but it's only half the story. It's only half of who Jesus is and what he's done to save sinners, right? Specifically verse 10 when it says, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Um, on March 28th of this year, 2022, uh, your Memphis Grizzlies defeated the Golden State Warriors at home 123 to 95. Dominant victory. Awesome. And after this win, Jaron Jackson Jr. takes to Twitter, like so many young Grizzlies players do, and he tweets the phrase, strength in numbers, which, if you're a Warriors fan or if you know anything about the Warriors organization, that's a very, like, personal slogan for them. Uh, they kind of adopted that as, like, a team slogan back when, they, uh, back when their bench uh, came from behind, won this big game uh, over Cleveland in game one of the NBA Finals. Uh, so for Golden State, right, this phrase, strength in numbers... Uh, it was very personal. Uh, it was a creed or a confession, right? This is the Christ hymn. Maybe Strength in Numbers was part of the, the Golden State Warriors hymn. And so when Jaron Jackson Jr. tweets that after beating them, Strength in Numbers, anyone who knows anything about those organizations knows exactly what he's saying. 
They know exactly what he's putting his finger on, right? He's, he's twisting the knife, so to speak, right? He's rubbing the win into their face, so much so that Clay Thompson, after they win the national championship, still is thinking about that tweet, right? He knows, he knows exactly what Jaron meant when he tweeted that. Now, why do I say this? Paul knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, right? He was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law. And so he especially knew Isaiah 45, which is a chapter in the Old Testament where God himself, right, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, says this, to me, to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And so what Paul is saying in verse 10, right, that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's taking something that could only ever be applied to Yahweh in the Old Testament, and he's applying it to Jesus. He's saying Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament. They are one and the same, right? Same God, different persons. And that's, that's the scandal of the gospel, right? That, that God became a man to save men. That God humiliated and humbled himself so that people like us who deserve humiliation and humbling could be exalted, And so you have to have both. You have to have the humiliation and the exaltation. You have to have Christ broken for you and Christ resurrected and ascended for you. You have to have Christ that was defeated by death and you have to have the Christ who defeated death. Right? We need both. He he is both the Lion of Judah and the King of the universe and he is the Lamb that was slain. Right? He's both. It's not just that Christ can sympathize with the lowest of this world. He can, but it's that, it's that he overcame the world. Right? It's not just that Jesus is your Savior. He is. It's that your Savior is also your King and your Lord. And so at the resurrection, Jesus showed himself to be stronger than death, stronger than sin. And actually with the resurrection and the ascension into heaven, right, that after 40 days the resurrected, the resurrected Christ ascended into heaven, he went up into heaven, it means that Jesus' physical, resurrected, glorified body exists in time, space, somewhere right now, which just always blows my mind. He's at the right hand of God the Father is what Scripture says. And that that body has wounds on it. The scripture teaches that his body still bears the marks of the crucifixion. There's a hymn uh, that I was reminded of when I was studying for this called Crown Him with Many Crowns. Um, you might be familiar with it, uh, but in one of the verses it says, Crown Him the Lord of Love. Behold, which just means to look at, right? Behold his hands and side. Rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. And what that's saying is that Jesus' glorified, resurrected, ascended body, it still has the wounds from the crucifixion on it. That when we as believers see him face to face, he will still have the holes in his hands and his side. Which means that his wounds for you do not go against his glory and his exaltation. They're actually a part of it. Right? That the wounds of the crucifixion do not go against the glory and exaltation of Jesus. They're part of it. That's kingly behavior. That's what a king really looks like. A pastor named John Dennis says this. He says, by humbling himself on the cross out of love, what Jesus does is he demonstrates that he, he truly shares in the divine nature of God, who is love. In other words, that's what God really looks like. Someone who would bear wounds for people who on their best days still do a really bad job of loving him and following him. 
Like, if that is what God is like, if that's who he is, that, he's worth following. That is a God worth losing your status over, and that is a God who is worth giving up your rights for. Like, you want glory? You want to be exalted? It looks like humbling yourself. Right? You, you, want, you want glory and you want exaltation? It looks like giving it away in this life. Look, on the cross, Jesus emptied himself so that we could be full. Right? On the cross, Jesus was emptied so that we could be full. Right? His humiliation is so that we could be exalted. So what? Right? Big whoop. All that sounds really great, but so what? How's this going to help me on an average Tuesday afternoon, right? When I'm not in church anymore and I'm in traffic, all this different stuff. Um, application, right? Humiliation, incarnation, exaltation, application. So what? If we take the model of the incarnation, or the humiliation of Jesus, if we have that mind, which Paul says we do, if you're in Jesus, you have this mindset, then this looks like us moving in to the neighborhood as well, Right? God pitched his tent, he tabernacled with us, he moved in and he put down roots. This looks like us doing the same. And I'm not going to get into a debate on whether God could have saved humanity in a different way, but what we do know is that he and his perfect wisdom chose this way. I'm going to humiliate myself. I'm going to go through this to save my people. If that's how we've been saved and if that's how we've been redeemed, then surely that means that what it looks like for us to participate in God's work in the world has to look the same. It looks like us doing the same thing, having the same look, having the same character. But the only way, the only way we could ever start doing this, right, to, to let go of our status, to, to stop grasping at safety and comfort by letting those things go and becoming low and serving people whom God has placed around us, the only way that's possible is if that is your story of how you've been redeemed, that God has done that for you. Uh, this last month in Memphis has been really hard, and that's an understatement. But the incarnation shows that the answer cannot be to retreat, but that the answer has to be to lean in and to love more deeply to continue moving into the neighborhood, so to speak. And I am not binding your conscience and telling you where to live. I'm not saying you have to live in Midtown or you have to live in a certain area. But what I am saying is that the posture that we need to have towards our city is one of embrace and not one of abandon. That's what it looks like to try to incarnate the love of God in Jesus to those in our city even when it's the hardest thing to do, because look, Jesus knows what it's like. Jesus knows what it's like to have people that he came to save spit in his face and mock him and tear the skin off his back to be deserted by his friends, to be denied publicly by his friends, right? When he needs them most. When the place that God has called you to love feels impossible, he knows the feeling. He's been there, and he endured it to save sinners like us. But Christ is not just your example. If he was just your example, that would be, that'd be terrible. If it was just, hey, go love like Jesus loved. Like, who can do that? That's impossible. No one can live up to that. He's not just our example. He's also what empowers us to do it. He's not just an example to follow. And see, think, think about it this way. If your ability to love a broken and messy and at times heartbreaking and infuriating place, if your ability to do that comes from your own strength, you will give up quickly and you will give up often. 
But if the source of your power to do this comes from the never giving up, never stopping, unrelenting, gracious, and merciful love of Jesus, then you have access to a well that will never run dry. Right? And you will have access to grace and to mercy and to forgiveness for the ways that you blow it, for the ways that we don't do this well. Right? The ways that we fail, the ways that we don't live up to the mind that we have in Jesus. And look, your ability to do this well, to, 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 to put others' needs before yourself, to do nothing out of vain, uh, ambition or selfish conceit, your ability to do that well is not what saves you. Right? God does not save you or love you because you're good at this. And that's a beautiful truth because if that's true, it means you have freedom to just go try right, and fail. You will fail. None of us are going to do this perfectly or consistently. And that's not what saves us. And look, when it's done, when it actually happens, it's actually done by Christ in you and through you. It's actually him doing it the whole time. Right? And Paul says, look, if you belong to Jesus, if that's, if that's your Savior, right, if, he's, if he's redeemed you, if you belong to him, you have this mind available to you. And you won't do it perfectly and you won't do it consistently and your failures will be covered by his grace. Look, the only way to find joy in losing your status and giving up your rights is when your deepest joy is that God the Son gave up his status and gave up his rights to come get you. That's an invitation. Let's pray. God, this text is awesome. Uh, this passage is an amazing indicative about who you are and what you have done for us. We could say a thousand things about it, uh, that you are better than we think. You're better than we think. And yet this passage is also attached uh, to the verses that came before it, which tell us to go love people, uh, to put others' needs above ourselves, to humble ourselves, and to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. God, we need your help. That is impossible unless your grace and your love infiltrates our hearts and change us. So we're begging you to do that. Would, would, would Jesus Christ crucified be more beautiful and believable to us uh, than all the things that we have a vice grip on that we think are going to bring life and comfort and control? We need your help, and we know we have it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.